and welcome to the Sun and the Moon. My name is Alexandria Irons, and I'm here today with my host, co-host Luna. Hey, I'm Luna. Luna all day. You have to forgive me. I'm I'm a little sick today, so I'm a little raspy. But I'm really excited that we have Murphy on the show today. Um, a very very talented and educated or knowledgeable uh, professional in the cannabis industry, doing a lot of extraction work with cannabis and with mushrooms. I'm super excited to dive into some really cool concepts with you. Definitely. Thanks for having me, you guys. Yeah, for sure. Ugh. So did, were you at Myceliate this past weekend? I didn't go this year. I went last year. Um, this year it was going to be especially with the ferry and stuff, I couldn't really like pop in and out for a day like I was hoping. And so I didn't get to go and spend the weekend. Um, but hopefully next year, the school schedule will work out better. If it was like one week later, my son would have been out of school for the weekend. It would have been perfect. But next oh, next year, no. for sure. Did you go? I, I didn't go this year. We actually had a death in our family. So unfortunately, just life but i was there last year and i saw you speak and i was just super interested in everything that you have going on especially with the mushroom extraction it's like it's just so cool seeing how that industry is blowing up and blooming and um what you can apply from cannabis industry into the mushroom extraction you know it's all applicable and really cool yeah, for sure. I mean, if anything, it's it's comforting because it's like, you know, we don't have to really reinvent very much. Um, you know, we just have to go exploring and it's a lot more fun with mushrooms because there's still so much unknown. So there's not a whole lot of like my way is the best yet, you know. <laughs> Murphy, totally. why don't you tell everyone like exactly what you do for maybe people who don't know who you are and like the processes that you play with and like just what you're all about. Sure. Um, so I've, I've been working in the cannabis industry for, you know, quite a long time. Um, 2009 is when I started out and, you know, I started out doing just bubble hash like everyone, you know, um, and back then it was like full melt clear dome. Like we were collecting trichome heads, you know, very, very rudimentary, but like, classic, you know, still, still fire today. Um, from there, I got into, you know, chemical extraction, especially as licensing came into play and with licensing came um, higher costs and therefore outside funding. And so like, you know, the more money you spend, the more cool shit you can do. Um, and through that evolution, we started to see cannabis testing arrive on the scene. When I first started working in this industry, everyone was doing their potency tests with gas chromatography. So everyone was getting Delta nine tests, um, which is not what you're growing, right? Like you're, there's a whole other profile, a whole other molecule that's on the plant. And so, you know, the way we tested determined a lot about the way we extracted, the way we infused, because we can only work with that, you know, type of information, you know, in the context we were given. And that's one of the the biggest parallels that I see with the mushroom extraction right now is that, you know, we had people making mushroom extracts like the blue juice or the lemon tech or whatever at home for a long time, but the testing wasn't there to back that up. And so, you know, for the previous decades and decades and decades of mushroom consumption, the people who were extracting weren't talking about it like it's a sophisticated extract because we didn't have the data to demonstrate that we went from 
five to 20 or whatever, you know, in our potency. And, and that's the area where as soon as mushroom legalization started showing up in, you know, in Oakland, in Denver, now in the whole state of Colorado and in Oregon as well, like, I knew that that is that was our our limitation. Once we started having HPLC testing and we could look at potency quickly and for cheap, like that that was the important part. Okay, um, you know, in terms of improving like what we were doing and how we were doing it, you know, every decision that we made before testing was like a a guess or like a tip from a friend. You know, it wasn't supported by data um, and. The, the same is very much true in the mushroom world. You've got people who will, um, you know, like you see the, the nutrient kind of conversation happening in the in the substrate world. And mm -hmm. none of that is being backed up with data to support that potency or data to support the sugar content or the reduced moisture content even. Um, most people aren't even, you know, accurately telling you how many days, you know, are, are they saving time? And so like we, we lose all those data points and so, you know, I, I've got an HPLC at home here and, you know, the testing on the, the psychedelic drugs is, is where I've been, you know, spending a lot of my, my extra time and attention because that's what informs everything that comes next. You know, all of the methods that I'm using when I'm looking at, at fungi are borrowed from other things that have worked or are based on, you know, the analytical data as it develops. And that part is is wild because it does just change, you know, overnight. You know, two years ago, we weren't testing for more than psilocybin and psilocin. And now everyone's got five tryptamines minimum. You know, it's a big difference. Um, and it's just going to keep expanding into other categories, which is exciting because it's like it's proof that we can do it, that like once you give us the data, we can get better. Um, but I also know like that's, that's our limitation. You know, when I look at cannabis, like our ability to accurately test the flavor profile of a cannabis plant is just trash. Like we are not even trying, you know, everyone talks about turfs. Nobody tests for turfs. And part of the reason nobody tests for turfs is because it's not exactly the information we're looking for. You know, it's not enough. Right. Okay. Like and the other volatile compounds. Yeah, well, other and other categories of compounds and also just how they work together, you know, like it was a long time before we really understood that a, a large quantity of CBN made a difference when you were consuming an extract, you know, and until we figured that out, more was more, you know, we didn't we didn't look at it as more could be different. More was just more. And, you know, the, the same thing I think is, is going to be really important with some of the psychedelics because, you know, the difference between hungry and sleepy when I smoke a joint is only so much, but the difference between, you know, overly emotional or overly visually stimulated is a lot if I'm like a microdosing mom, you know, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. like, you know, versus... <laughs> And so, you know, there's just, there's a lot of, you know, kind of responsibility in that data, but there's not a whole lot of accountability for it because the consumers don't, don't ask or they don't say, Hey, I don't understand that. Or like, how does this affect me? You know, like no right. consumers use the, the limonene content to make their flower choice. Sometimes. Well, you know what? Sometimes. It's, 
it's why we're having the conversation now right here having the education out there and available to consumers is so important because we're i'm i mean it's like you're saying that people aren't testing for terpenes i guess i wasn't aware of that i mean i know that most i guess most people like home growers aren't but like in california it seems like they're pu putting a lot of terpene testing. I know that there's way more volatile organic compounds that are influencing the entourage effect and flavor, but I think just having the conversation and letting people know like higher THC doesn't mean high, like higher or what, what is it? What is it you're looking for? What is that end effect? And it's going to be influenced by all of these things. And it's, yeah, I mean, you pointing out the whole, I mean, the entourage effect of mushrooms and I'm also a microdosing mom, so I am so wary. Like I'm like, no, I, I yeah. can't be tripping. Like with the child around, it's completely different. And as we're seeing the medicinal benefits of it, like it's completely changed my life. Getting through postpartum depression, um, helping with so many things, and it's. I mean, there there is so much in humanity responsible, like from psychedelics and that, that has been sh taken away from us as our human rights as a sovereign individual to have that experience with nature. So this is just amazing. I'm so happy that we're here having this conversation so that we can educate people and get consumers to ask these questions. Hey, what is it? What am I test? What, what are these test results? What do they even mean? So what as you are like, data is super important to you. What would you advise people to look for if you were like talking to a newbie here who's just like, you know, what do you want? What do you want to see on those test results? What should be, uh, what should be a requirement of everyone? Um, I think the first thing you want to pay attention to on any COA is the date. When was that sample delivered to the lab? And when was that COA produced? And then compare that to today. You know, I was listening um, to one of your past episodes and I think uh, it was Luna who said, you know, that potentially one of the reasons people shut off the lights is to cut down on that terpene evaporation, you know, because those um, those terps aren't getting quite as hot when they're not under the light. And, you know, that that UV loss, you know, even when it isn't degradation is very real. And when you think about the product on the shelf the time that has lapsed in between when that test was done and today matters a lot, you know? Um, and, and that's one thing that I think is easy to overlook because that product is new to you when you go in and buy it. Right. But, you know, especially in a state like California, you know, it's, it's passed through two layers of licenses before it gets to you at a minimum and even if those are within the same company under the same roof you know that could be a month's old product in which case you know the previously volatile aromatics on that coa may not be there anymore you know or they may have changed and you know the the representative sample aspect of things is tricky too but i think the the freshness of a product is really what matters the most when I think about some of those COAs, and, and this is especially true when it comes to your mushrooms, because we have compounds that are sensitive to UV, they're sensitive to moisture, they're sensitive to oxygen. So their ability to break down is rapid. And so, you know, my test result from a month ago may not mean anything compared to a test result, you know, from last week. And so, you know, that that shelf life is really important. You know, when we go buy a loaf of bread, like 
if it's not going to expire for two months, that's some weird bread, you know, like that's, I want to look at, you know, what's, what's fresh and what's available. I think that, you know, expiration dates in our industry have been kind of like a, just a thing that we say, you know, like we just put like a year from now or what, you know, like just like longer away than we think it'll take us to sell it is what an expiration date is. Um, but a lot of it isn't really backed up with like, you know, has this profile changed, you know, since we packaged it, since we tested and after how much time, because that, that use by date really should reflect continuity. But, you know, anyone who's ever brought a, bought a pre-roll knows that like, you know, if the terpene test results on my pre-roll match the terpene test results on the pre-packed eighth and match the terpene test results on the open jar that they're weighing out ounces for me. And there's just no chance, you know, and, and ultimately the batch test that came out was supposed to be representative of all those products, but it just isn't, you know? Um, And that, that part is kind of tough to illustrate to consumers because you're rarely looking at all three of those at the same time. Oh. And so you kind of get a piece of data that's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Ooh, saying this is peach ice cream. Like that could mean a lot of different flavors in your mm-hmm. mouth. And, you know, it, it's it's going to point you in a direction. But the the freshness of that COA and the freshness of that product is so important before you even get into, you know, the breakdown. Yeah, it 100%. seems like with regulation that it takes a lot longer for products to get to market than they used to be back in medical days, like Prop 215 right. in California. You just chop down, take your suitcase to the dispensary. They bought it there. It's on the shelf like the next day. And now it's going through so many processes before it can even get to the shelf and get to the consumer. Um you mentioned about with um, with the mushrooms, their shelf life. What? is that i don't even i have no clue what i mean i have mushrooms like from you know at least three months old i'm like how how long is my mushroom is eat them now eat them immediately quick hurry no (laughs) it's it's um it has a lot to do with storage just like i said there's there's so many opportunities for degradation for mushrooms um you know the the outside casing of the mushroom all of that chitin is really like the best defense that it's got as soon as you harvest it and you know you've broken that initial skin that degradation begins you know and so all we can ever do is slow it down um so you know being able to dry it quickly and thoroughly is i think the first most important thing which you know same for cannabis right like you you need to get that first initial dry and cure correct because everything that comes after that, you know, is dependent upon that, you know, that first moisture removal process. And, and if you leave too much moisture in the degradation is rampant and you're going to get dark blue mushrooms and they're, you know, they're going to get hard and woody pretty quickly because they just start the sugars in them start breaking down. Um, if you over dry them too quickly, then you might end up uh, similarly oxidizing them depending on your drying method. And so, you know, that that original drying method really tells you like where you're starting, you know, like if there's a, a fixed, you know, race of, you know, to from one to zero, you might be starting further along based on a poor drying. And then from there, it's all storage. And so you want to be airtight, you want to be in the dark, you want to not be exposed to moisture, and you don't want 
fluctuations in temperature because that can create moisture even inside of a closed container as you know that mushroom can sweat and that that hydroscopic nature like it's really going to draw in moisture if you dry it properly so like freeze-dried mushrooms for example retain you know most of their potency but you have to keep them perfectly sealed and stored at all times because they will get like wet in your hand if it's a little humid outside, you know? And so that, um, you know, it creates, it solves one problem and gives you a different one over here, you know? And so it's a lot like, you know, kind of like a properly cured cannabis. It can tolerate a little bit more variation after it's sort of established its own homeostasis. Um, but with mushrooms, we, it, they're just so much more susceptible to that moisture content that I haven't found a good sweet spot other than keeping them sealed. And then I throw everything with argon. And so that's going to displace the air inside the container. Okay. Um, this works great for cannabis, works great for your concentrates. Um, I highly recommend it if you ever have to like um, like say you're going to a festival or something like, you know, you're going into the heat, you're going camping, you know that you're going to expose your hash to like some less than ideal conditions, <laughs> um, filling uh, your jar with argon. It's this is actually like made for wine. So if you like wine, it's good for that, too. But <laughs> but yeah, you just displace awesome. all the oxygen. And that's that's really it. It's like to reduce oxidation caused by moisture, get rid of the moisture. To reduce oxidation that's caused by uh, oxygen, get rid of the oxygen. To reduce, you know, degradation caused by UV, keep it in the dark. Um, you know, like all we can do is kind of block it. You know, it's that's all defensive. Cool. <laughs> you think argon, huh? That's that's really awesome. Um, so like, I know like in, in cannabis, you know, like we have a, a specific profile of compounds that we're trying to preserve and stuff. Um, but when it comes to like mushrooms, the only thing that I know about is just like psilocybin, right? right. So I'm sure that there's a diversity of compounds that we're going to be going after. And I know there's different strains that have different physiological effects on the body and on the mind and stuff. What are some of these other compounds that are going to be degradating that we want to preserve? So some of the tryptamines that you'll find kind of similar to like your panel of cannabinoids, some of the tryptamines that people are testing for now are precursors to, you know, your psilocybin or to your psilocin. Um, and then others are going to be degradation compounds. And so you're going to see things like baocystin, which is produced first um, along the road to psilocybin. You're going to see things like norcilocin, which are degradation byproducts. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of similar to the types of diversity that you'd see in cannabinoids, where they're all similar structures. Some of them are just going to fit more perfectly into a serotonin receptor than another. Um, and some of them, you know, are being produced during the life cycle of that mushroom. And some of them are being um, produced or increased based on what I am doing to it, you know, once I've harvested it or handled it. Um, but outside of that, like all mushrooms contain all nine amino acids, you know, like they are full of highly bioavailable sugars and, you know, carbohydrates that are super healthy for you. Um, the cubensis mushrooms have so much less of that than uh, a lot of the others. You kind of, you make a trade, you know, which I think is is the key when we think about the, like the flavor profile for any of these natural products. Like if we, ex if we expand the THC, the, the pie is still a pie. So if I make this piece bigger, 
another piece gets, you know, smaller. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, we, we trade, um, you know, some of the other like valuable compounds like adenosine or like cordycepin or, you know, some of the compounds found in, you know, Ganoderma that are extremely, you know, medicinal beneficial to humans. Some of them are going to support your immune system. So that's your adaptogens, which means they're just very good for stress. They're good for, um, you know, helping you regenerate uh, cells. Um, so like lion's mane is one that's very popular for that because um, some of the hericinones and arenosines are all um, going to support that, you know, nerve development in your brain. And so it's like hericinones and hericinones and arisinines. Um okay. And then you've got uh, the ergos. So like there's ergothiamine, ergothionine, all of those ergo drugs, you'll see those like in capsules at, you know, in the nutritional supplement section of every store, because those are all, um, you know, purported to uh, help support, you know, all of that, you know, neural regeneration and um, potentially like fight and prevent Alzheimer's. And so they're just vitamins, like they're just nutritionally good for you. But when you think about, you know, pairing those healthy things with the psychoactive things, it's really important. You know, if you smoke weed all day and don't get enough vitamin C, like your inflammation won't go away, you know, like you still will be on, you know, like we've got to get a little bit of everything together. Um, right. And that's going to be different person to person which is just fine because there are as many different mushrooms as there are different people, probably, <laughs> you know, we've got, <laughs> you've got a lot of choices, but you know, what's, what's cool about it is that there's interactions in between all of those compounds. And so, you know, in the same way that like enzymes are encouraging the production of flavonoids inside of a trichome, you've got enzymes inside of this mycelium that's encouraging the production of some of these fatty acids and some of these fatty acids preserve the alkaloids. And so figuring out, you know, how they work together in the mushroom is really important. Even if that fatty acid isn't going to help me with my psilocybin, um, if it keeps more psilocybin in that mushroom, that's helpful to me, you know? So all of these things are, you know, kind of important, maybe for different reasons, you know, having more norcilocin might give you a more intense trip, um, but having more bay assistant might be indicative of having less of a certain enzyme that, you know, would have caused and led to, you know, some degradation down the line. So it's like, it's such a web, you know, to say any one thing is like one word in a sentence. It's just not quite a whole idea yet. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, like with, with cannabis, you know, like we, the soil composition and like different nutrient profiles that we deliver to them are going to affect the end result pretty drastically. Um, but from what I understand about mushroom cultivation is, is it's a lot of the time just very sterile, um, use a particular substrate. Um, is the substrate going to affect like the end result and profile of compounds in the product and the, the mushroom? I mean, it has to, right? Like right. the idea yeah. that we've we've handled all of these mushrooms under these sterile circumstances really doesn't have anything to do with what the mushroom needs to grow. What it has to do with is removing contamination because mushrooms and fungus of all kinds grow. They grow so well and so easily and so quickly that your ability to grow a single type of fungus at a time, that's the part that's difficult. And so in order to isolate it, it's not like one seed, one plant, you know, like 
one spore, you can't get a one spore. That's not a thing. You know, your one spore is going to be in the air and space with so many others. And so, you know, to be able to, you know, cultivate one type of fungus in a controlled setting requires that level of sterility. But, you know, if you look at like natural turkey tail or reishi farms in the forest, like they're just inoculated logs laid out and they're interacting right. with the world around them. You know, some of these wood eaters, like they need the decomposing flesh of a tree to do what they got to do. And you could try to grow it on grain, but I am sure that there's there's just got to be a chemical difference at some level. And whether that's happening, you know, based on like a lack of or overproduction of specific enzymes that then lead to other chemical outcomes, or if it's just shape, size, speed of growth, you know, the moisture content by the time you're harvesting, like there's so many factors, just like cannabis. It's, it's crazy to think that there isn't an impact. The problem is just that if we only test psilocybin, like that's the last stop on the train. And so like to work backwards from there to decide what to do differently, it's the longest road rather than starting with like, what are the first indications of something going well versus something going awry? 100%. So like, are you familiar with um, endophytes? Endophytes? No, tell me. No. Okay. So an endophyte is a bacteria that is integrated into the cell of a plant. Um, it can be consumed entirely through the root system and integrated into the cells. It can be applied and, and integrated into the cells. Um, but it's a, it's a bacteria that lives within the cell of a plant and it can provide a bunch of different functions like uh, phytohormones that then lead to different you know, metabolic pathway stimulation, flavonoid pathway stimulation and stuff like that. Um, do, is, do you know if anything like that exists in the mushroom world? Absolutely. Most mushrooms like exist based on bacterial symbiosis, you know, their, their entire um, existence me, is dependent upon another organism. A lot of, you know, um, a lot of fungus is not producing fruiting bodies above the ground and it's just keeping everything alive underneath so, us. So let me, and let me those, be here. Sorry, I, I hate to interrupt oh, yeah. you, but I feel like I didn't, I didn't work my question properly. So, so like, yeah, fungal hyphae, like definitely, um, you know, encompass, uh, bacteria, right. And they're full of bacteria and different, um, hyphal, whatever spores, oospores, whatever, they're full of bacteria. Um, but I guess what I was specifically wondering is like in plants, bacteria can be used as like in symbiosis, like they use it as a new part to like produce like a new part right. of the cell to produce specific compounds that affect the functionality of like the plant itself. Do you know if like the, that bacteria can synergize with mushroom cells to like stimulate specific processes in like there, fruiting bodies? There definitely are bacteria that are like, you know, exclusively responsible for, um, and a lot of times it's like almost electrical type of signaling between mycelial networks. Um, I don't know of any that are going to relate specifically to cubensis, probably in part because we grow it under such sterile conditions all of the time. So you'd have to go find a cow field um, to get a proper <laughs> example of a naturally occurring one. Um, because most of the time what we look at is, you know, contamination. Um, and we and we disregard those so quickly. And I think that's that's the tricky part is that because 
fungi are also replicating themselves asexually, you know, your, your ability to reproduce, like it's, it's the, you know, the original chicken or the egg is, you know, what came first fungi or bacteria, because both of them could survive in space and crash on this planet on a meteorite. So which came first? And there's no way to answer it because most of these fungi and bacteria don't exist without each other. And so, you know, um, a lot of that contributes to, for example, like creating, um, like a vapor environment around itself where you've got, you know, a condition underneath the soil that's um, going to repel the bad bacteria or the other things that they want to um, deter and keep away from the sensitive little homes that they've cultivated. Um, but when it, we look at some of the stuff that we are doing in, inside of plastic bags, inside of plastic tubs, inside of our plastic homes, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's we're going out of our way to keep everything so absolutely sterile that, you know, we probably are missing out on, you know, some of those potential advantages. I know that that's one thing that I worry about with like the mass cultivation of some of the functional mushrooms is that, you know, we don't necessarily know which compounds we need to test for to evaluate, is this a quality cut, you know? And, right. and even if we did, I don't trust us to have the best judgment because, you know, when we were able to test for cannabinoids, we went crazy testing for cannabinoids uh -huh. and now it's THC, THC, THC. So, you know, I, I want to say test for everything that you can, but then it's, it's really hard to prioritize because some of these, you know, are going to come with a trade-off, right? Like if there's a bacteria that's going to support, um, you know, the fatty acid and protein production of another mushroom, that's super important. You know, like we need more and better clean sources of vitamin D to be able to take, you know, as supplements, um, especially to fight all of the screens and the blue light and everything else, you know, that's going on in this world. But, you know, if we don't, if we don't know what we're looking for, it's going to be so hard to figure out where we've made that turn, which is, is really tricky. And when you're dealing with it on this microscopic level, things change fast. So yeah. you got to test it a lot yeah. and at the right time, you know, and, and hopefully have a, a enough time between that test uh, and that, you know, getting that data back to react to it in any, you know, productive way. The good news is that mushrooms grow so much faster than cannabis. So yeah. you really could just shrink another bag and, and try again. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still that same level of trial and error because there's just so much about, you know, how fungus works fundamentally, you know, like how nutrients move through it that we don't have any good explanation of yet. You know, we're looking at observations from the, the finish line backwards, which is a tough, a tough way to explain anything. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, that's so fucking cool. That's awesome that you're doing all this stuff, Murphy. That's so rad. It's um, it's fun because cannabis had gotten um, it. You know, it was turning into a bit of an echo chamber, and especially once COVID hit, I was like, oof. You know, been doing the same thing over and over, and now that I have to look at it all on a screen instead of in the presence of other people, with you know, it's almost like I couldn't try enough different weed for that like period of six months there that I lost enthusiasm for it. And so 
it got stale on me. And so I, I'm like so excited to have something to get passionate about again, because it does make me feel like I did when I was like 23 and like made a new consistency of hash that I'd never made before. You know what I mean? Like I get to do really new things all of the time, which is yeah. a luxury that I do not take for granted. Yeah, you seem like you're really in, like last night uh, when I was watching your live. Um, Murphy had a live last night, um, and you were crunching up your what were they cordyceps? It was a cordyceps extract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You seem like you're like really enjoying it. You're like, yes, like, it's so, so cool. fun. Yeah, playing, yeah, like, you know, doing all this stuff and doing science and research and everything. Um, so, do you have your own lab now? What what what's your story? Are you working for someone? Are you just doing education and and research on your own? Yeah, a little bit of everything. I've been, you know, kind of consulting all along, but, uh, you know, again, like COVID kind of switched up the schedule because I was doing a lot of in-person classes before that. And then once COVID hit, I started doing a bunch of webinars and online stuff, um, which was great to be able to do, but I got pretty burned out on like just my own face right, know, yeah, on the screen cool. every yeah. day, you know, like it's, it's hard to be authentic by myself, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> you know, <laughs> so, um, so, you know, right, right after it was, you know, cool to go out again, I started trying to get back into the, to the in-person classes, but there was kind of a lull in the industry. So I started, um, you know, playing around with more of the psychedelic stuff and, um, which has been awesome. But then that took me right out of the legal lab, uh, because, you know, I've, I've, we've got an HPLC and a GC, MS over at Santa Gardens at, you know, my licensed medical rec lab, um, but I can't bring mushrooms in there. Um, so, you know, so I had to split it up. So I'm a co-owner in that lab. Um, but then I've got a separate little research lab um, for mushrooms. Uh, and, you know, we're just, we're learning what we can and figuring out what to do next. The rules for like mushroom distribution um, and testing are uh, going to be established probably sometime in the, you know, maybe by the end of the year, but probably early spring in Colorado. And so um, once that plays out, I'll figure out if I'm going to take my HPLC into a, uh, you know, registered commercial address and pay money to the DOR again, or, um, you know, or if we'll keep it at home. But one thing that I am really excited about is that, you know, the language in the current draft is protective of allowing home growers to be able to have access to the licensed labs to get their stuff tested, which is something that is like so obvious, but we missed it with cannabis. We just completely missed it. And even today, if you grow cannabis, you can't go get it tested easily because you have to go to not the licensed labs. You have to go to somebody else. And it's like, how, how can you compare then? You know, like I want to compare this dispensary's weed versus the same strain that I grew and, um, you know, to do that without the access to the same quality and types of labs and equipment is crazy. So, you know, we've been able to so far preserve that in Colorado for mushroom growers, which I think will be really important for keeping the, the mushroom industry kind of contained and small batch because, you know, we, we need that evidence when a home grower can demonstrate the level of consistency and purity that anyone else in a commercial location does using that same testing. Like, I think, I think we'll be able to upfront eliminate the myths of like the black market 
weed is untested. It's contaminated with whatever, you know, um, and we'll just be able to like, just cut that out right from the start and just say, because what we all know is that the small grows do it better. You know, like what we, you know, like, well, not all of them, but, you know, if we were to, if we were to compare all of the commercial versus all of the like, you know, craft, like you just are going to, you're going to see such a different trend in that, you know, the size. And I think from an innovation perspective, like we need both, you know, we need the mass produced product for research, for consistency, for the mass consumer that probably doesn't need a really powerful experience because they probably are just like going to Red Rocks and they'll be all right. You know, yeah. um, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, exactly. But, you know, but we don't get innovation out of those environments. We get innovation out of small batches. We get innovation out of someone accidentally doing something wrong, learning oh, something new, yeah. you know, and, and that's where like access to testing for the small grows will be huge. So I hope that that's where I will get to kind of live for a while because there's really not a place in the current legal adult use system to do cannabis research. You know, like the people who are doing cannabis research are either like doing medical clinical research, which is just such a different thing um, that does rely on that highly consistent, super simplified, you know, product. Um, but, you know, there just there should be a way to make your living researching, you know, the way to grow researching, you know, like I always say, the living soil guys love to talk about their microbes, but I'm like, tell me which flavonoids you're producing because of those microbes. Oh, you know, know, because, you know, <laughs> of course not, of course not. But in the same way that you figured out what microbes you could figure out what flavonoids. It's just that, you know, everyone looks well, we, yeah, we don't have this one piece of the process, you know, you know? and so, you know, chromatograph, well, here's the thing is we could innovate cheaper ways to do it. Right. Like, you know, the fact that we can take like a little speck of white powder and find out if there's fentanyl in it or not. Like if we wanted to, we could in in a very real way it's just got to come from the demand if the state thought that it was critically important to know which flavonoids were in that cannabis uh-huh it would right. be done sure it would because, be affordable you know right. and so it's it's got to come from the ground up and i think keeping keeping things a little bit smaller initially in the mushroom world will really support that you know cool Fuck yeah. so at least i hope my question yeah. is for uh, mushroom cultivation with the testing that you're doing, are you seeing, cause I've been hearing rumors about like nitrogen, adding nitrogen in either like ammonium phosphate or some people are doing like neem or just sterilizing their substrate with a nitrogen source. What is, why, what, what is that? I mean, so nitrogen's a nutrient, right? Um, and, and a critical one, uh, especially for some of like the simplest processes, you know, inside of that, that fungus for it to metabolize things. So, you know, I think that there's, there's probably some value in um, sort of kind of breaking up that substrate because, you know, the standard sterilization is just like substrate in a bag, water, boil the hell out of it. Right. And, and so like that will kill stuff. Um, but then, you know, the next question is like, okay, but how does the mycelium penetrate throughout that substrate in an efficient way? 
You know, like if you were growing in a pot, but your plant always grew in only one side of the pot, like that's no good. You got to figure out why the root system can't expand in a more homogenous way because it'll lead to more problems down the line. And so I think that, you know, potentially introducing more nitrogen up front can help kind of create some space inside of that substrate where just boiling water and compacting things in these plastic bags may not be as representative of the way that that mycelium would show up out in the world, you know, in, in regular soil or the stump of a tree or whatever. Um, but outside of that, again, like I said, a lot of people aren't able to, you know, it just comes down to like what you use to measure the efficacy of that. And so, you know, it's funny that we all complain about like everyone brags about THC now, but remember when everyone only bragged about three alight? Like we got to brag about something. We, we, we only know how to brag about the one thing we're doing, you know? And so like, we'll only replace that with something new as we go along. And I think, you know, similarly, a lot of um, mushrooms, like when I look at the bags out there, you know, people are, are advertising how quickly it'll fruit and how much weight you're going to produce out of it. And so weight does not equal potency does not equal chemical diversity, does not equal shelf life, you know, does not equal ease of growing, you know, um, there's all these different factors to, to keep in mind. Um, but if, if weight is what we're asking for, then that's what we'll get. And similarly, when we stop thinking about the weight per tub versus the weight per bag, we'll start looking at the potency per tub and the potency per bag. And, you know, and that's as far as we've gotten with cannabis. So like whatever comes next, let's just, you know, hurry up and, and find out, <laughs> put it on the list. Um, because a lot of those different additives, it's like, you know, some of them are, are troubleshooting additives to make sure that you are, you know, eliminating, you know, the potential for contamination to show up later. And, you know, in doing that, you can take advantage of, you know, greater surface area and not worry so much about an external contamination in other um, circumstances, like a lot of people are kind of mixing substrate now too, which gets really complicated, you know, and this is where it gets right out of my level of expertise, because, you know, when, when we talk about adding nitrogen to a grain only substrate versus someone who's doing, you know, inoculated grain and a soil mix or like all of these different combinations. Now you have like the interactive, you have the whole family. Yeah, there's yeah. a huge network of compounds that are interacting with each other. Right. And so some of those, um, you know, like the phosphate you were mentioning, if I'm bringing soil into the mix, it's probably important to control some of what's going on in that soil, which may be more about the soil supporting the mushroom. And so I'm supporting the soil with a, this additive so that the soil can support the mushroom. But maybe my additive isn't having a direct measurable impact on the fruit, or maybe it is and we aren't measuring there's, there's so little data and most of the data right now is kind of about weight. Okay. Which, you know, makes sense. Like it's what, you know, measure something. If that's all you've got is a scale. Great. You know, I'll take, I'll take whatever numbers I can get. Um, but it, it's something that it's going to take more time and repetition, you know, to figure out. Okay. Well, I have another question for you when you were talking about in like, basically stacking like adaptogens and vitamins and different compounds with your psilocybin. What are your thoughts on the Stamets stack with the lion's mane and the niacin with the psilocybin? 
Um, so lion's mane is a really, a really tricky mushroom because it's one of the few examples of a fungus where you have compounds that are produced by the mycelium that aren't also in the fruiting body. And usually what you find in the mycelium is um, found in, you know, slightly greater concentration by weight in the fruiting body. But lion's mane does have compounds that are only in the mycelium. Um, and, you know, these are all, you know, neuroregenerative compounds, which is really important when you think about, you know, kind of the concept of what a psychedelic experience can do for you, because some of it is about, and I think, you know, the therapeutic aspect of it is really about kind of um, breaking connections, whether they're like weak connections between, you know, different synapses or, um, you know, just uh, bad habits that we're kind of breaking behaviorally. And so when you break some of those connections, having a regenerative compound in there to help support your brain after that trauma technically is is really valuable it's kind of like staying hydrated when you're drinking right like you've got to you know if you take from here you've got to compensate over here and so that's going to be really valuable especially if you're trying to take them every day for example because if you're microdosing every day you know, there, there is a cost to every, you know, chemical that goes in something, you know, reacts and goes out. And so to support that and kind of bring yourself back to a level of homeostasis every time is, is really valuable. The niacin part is a little tricky because I, I think, um, I don't know if you guys ever did like the take too much niacin to pass a drug test when you were a child. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. A few times. so having, Having experienced that, um, don't, right? Don't recommend it. Um, but that one is one that like you can, you can OD on niacin, you know, you can, um, you can take way too much of that. And so that's one that's a little bit tricky. Like you need to use as directed there, because if you want a more intense psychedelic trip, you can't just take more of a product that contains a bunch of niacin in it. You are going to push yourself over a threshold. And so for the purpose of like cleansing your body and your blood of the leftovers from whatever you took um, and supporting it with the, the vitamins, you know, the brain vitamins to rebuild connections afterwards is, is a really good approach to it. It's just um, it does require you to follow directions, which is a big ask of um people <laughs> yeah. taking mushrooms right. you know <laughs> and so you know i think i think that there's there's probably a lot of value in that it's just going to be on a case by case basis because what's tricky there is that now that you know that psilocybin quantity needs to be the correct dose for you um and so you know you've got to scale all of those things together Mm -hmm. which is, is still quite personal until we know what all of the interactions might be. Okay, interesting. So with the lion's mane, what compound is in the mycelium that's not in the fruiting body? I want to say it's the uh, aricinones are in the mycelium only. Um, and it's, it's just rare that that's the case um, because a lot of times, you know, the the mushrooms are just kind of an extension of the mycelium that, uh, you know, is just for spore production almost. So it's kind of just like 
a little more of what's underground. But um, but that's one of the few instances that I've ever heard of where we've got a bioavailable chemical that is is not found in the fruiting body. And I suspect that that probably has something to do with some of the other fatty acids that are abundant in lion's mane because lion's mane has just a lot of nutritional value, um, which is pretty neat, you know, like, like all nine amino acids in one location is kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, that's mushrooms, like they just are made of the building blocks of all of our lives. <laughs> oh, wow. You so, like the nine, the nine that like the body uses, you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the nine that are essential. And so, you know, it's just, it's so weird that, um, you know, like you could, you could pursue a really complicated diet to make sure that you, you know, are keeping up with all of those amino acids for health. But also it's like any given mushroom just has them right there for you. It's, it's too convenient. It's a little suspicious. <laughs> a little suspicious. I I've completely cut out coffee and I only do the lion's mane, you know, lattes every morning, um, chaga, reishi. I'm all about it. I have like gummies. I'm just like in it with the mushrooms and just helping my health. So I was always under the impression that the fruiting body was better than the mycelium. Um, like in some of those lattes, like I know some of them will be like only fruiting body and some of them will be like grain and mycelium based. So do you think that there is one or that's better than the other? So it's, it's just so hard to compare them because when someone, like when a product is, you know, made from mycelium, they're not like taking tweezers and harvesting hyphae, right? Like they're grinding up whatever that mycelium has, you know, wrapped itself around. And so by weight, you know, all that mycelium comes with all of that grain or whatever substrate it was grown on. And so, you know, if we're talking about a, a very sterile grown in a dish type of mycelium, then we might be, you know, avoiding all of that extra grain content. Um, but you know, we could potentially also be losing other compounds that are supported by the nutrition that that grain provides. You know, it's it's just so hard for me to think that changing something at that level doesn't change everything else somewhere over here, you know. Um, but so, you know, when you think of it in that context, you know, like a fruiting body, one gram of that versus one gram of mycelium and grain you know, it's just, it's just such an inherently different product by weight, because even if the concentration in the mycelium little pieces were to be higher, it's completely diluted by the substrate that comes with it. And so, you know, I think at minimum, the price should reflect that fruiting bodies take longer to grow. They take more investment to grow. Um, they take more investment to, you know, harvest to dry and everything else that comes with that. So the, the cost should reflect the shortcut that is the mycelium product. Um, that being said, you know, one of the reasons that you can switch from coffee to the mushroom products instead is because a lot of the compounds in your coffee that worked for you are in mushrooms. 
theobromine is in all of your coffee. It's a, a huge support to the caffeine in the coffee. It's the it's the energy without the crash in in your coffee. Um, you know, it's in really high quantities in espresso, for example. And so, you know, that theobromine's in the mushrooms too. You know, some of these other compounds are also there. And you can kind of tell when you smell like a reishi extract or a chaga extract, it smells like your coffee. It's the same molecule giving the coffee and those mushrooms that smell. And so, you know, all you've done is, you know, not necessarily replaced coffee, but found a product that gave you some of the goods, you know, without some of the bats, because, you know, right. to get that theobromine without the intense acidity of, you know, that caffeinated coffee bean is, is hugely valuable. And what's wild about these coffee beans is a lot of them rely on fungi to grow in the first place. So I couldn't even tell you if it's the coffee or if it's the mushrooms that grow with right. the coffee that are putting that product there, you know, ergothiamine used to be in every single thing we ate because the ground was myceliated all over the planet. And so every plant that we ate would have had ergothionine in it. Every animal that ate plants would have had ergothionine in it. And so the further away we get from myceliated soil, the less of those compounds we have, you know, in these second and third, you know, party sources. Um, but a lot of those compounds are, are not necessarily unique to mushrooms. They just are all in mushrooms, you know, um, just a nice bucket, which is really, like I said, it's, it's too coincidental, you know, it's, <laughs> what do you it's, it's exciting. But it's yeah, you, you, it's a little bit magic. Incidental. What do you what are you implying? What do you think it is? I mean, it just I think it's a it's a good demonstration of how like we probably genuinely need mushrooms. Like like I would I would call it a food group almost. You know, like if you don't have any mushrooms in your life, the you know the reason you're alive is because of your third party you know access to the compounds that mushrooms produce you just are getting your mushrooms through a plant or through an animal that you've eaten um but i think you know the fact that almost every you know nutritional compound we need to sustain our lives besides the water is in a fungus somewhere is just very um very significant you know it's there's a really important framework there. And it's, it's something that, you know, anyone who's growing living soil can see, you know, I think if you're growing living soil for cannabis, put some cubensis in that soil, let's find out because I, I feel like both inherently get better, right? The, you know, it's gotta be. <laughs> uh, the trichoderma just competes, man. I've, I've yeah. had two monotubs in the last few months. Just, I have so much trichoderma around. I don't know if I, I put some of my spores, my uh, tubs, and I just put it in the living soil bed, but nothing's, no, nothing's happening. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's a competitive environment in there. My sister-in-law believes that mushrooms are God. Like that is the, the God, like compound of the world is mushrooms that that is how all life has started that is how you know we're talking about all of these compounds that are necessary for life the evolution of plants 90 percent of them have a relationship with some type of mycorrhizal fungi most plants are communicating with each other with this fungal a relationship i mean you, it, travel through time and space 
art, language, religion, all of these things stem from fungus. And so it's like, well, what really is God if not the fungus among us? Right. Well, and, and in the sense that like, you know, a significant part of our, our physical human body mass is bacteria and microbial little little creatures, you know, thriving in us, like we are fungi as well, you know? And so, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Like I said, like you can, you can go the mystical route and see it as God, but if you believe the big bang theory, like a meteorite, um, you know, or a comet, you know, covered in ice, you know, hitting this planet, like all it has to deliver is a, a couple bacteria and a couple spores and we have life. You know, so it's it's just like you said, a little too coincidental, you know, like I don't know if if there are aliens so much as there are fungus, you know, <laughs> around us and and, you know, they needed us for something, I guess, um, because, yeah, they just they we rely on them in such interconnected ways that are um, so so obvious in a way that like it it has taken us longer to learn with a lot of other things you know like we had to ruin our soil across you know the planet to figure out that we were doing it wrong but you know right. with, with fungus you know if you've got trike it'll tell you quick you know you get to fail fast you know you get the, to silicon valley this uh, yeah. this process <laughs> nice. um, it looks like we have some questions um are, do you guys want to move to questions from the chat? Yeah, definitely. How long? How long you want to set aside for this, Murphy? What are you thinking? Um, I'm pretty flexible. So you're flexible. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty. I'm pretty low on energy. I do remember you wanted to talk about enzymes for a bit at one point. Well, but... my my big question was, have you looked at you know flavonoids based on your different um, blends? of you know all of your yeah yeah because so, the uh the enzyme interactions are so interesting and the microbes affect that in a way that i don't think we've really paid close enough attention to mm -hmm. um because so we're, I mean, we look at it at the wrong end you know just, just like how you were saying earlier there, there's so many different factors at play when it comes to soil and living soil um you know, with enzymes and amino acids, carbohydrates, you know, your, uh, your different fats, and there's just there's so many different things that for me, when, when my approach to it is just to include all of it, right, to, to create, <laughs> to create a thriving ecosystem with a diversity of different compounds, um, you know, different polysaccharide sources, you know, beta glucans, um, starch, like from algae, from, from, from everything from bacteria, chitin so on right um and let the plant communicate through like root exudates to then take up whatever it wants to kind of maximize like the genetic potential of the plant as far as like introducing specific enzymes to outcome in specific like terpenes or flavonoids i don't think that that's really how it works and i think almost by like intentionally pumping one one single compound you're going to throw things out of balance um a lot of the time I think it's better to just let the soil figure it out. Um, and, and there's people have like this, this innate urge to constantly like control things and like um, want to, to induce this particular thing. I say support the, the biology and let the ecosystem do it. 
Um, and then like, it's going to figure out what's best and it can express itself differently in a bunch of different ways. But as far as like a specific compound resulting in a specific terpene or a specific microbe that sec secretes a specific phytohormone or a specific compound that then results in a specific terpene, I just don't think that that's how it works. Um, it's more of just like giving the plant everything it needs to be able to you know, to express itself. Right. And then it's, you're kind of relying on the genetics of that plant for its inclination to produce one flavor versus another. Cause I always think about like in the hydro yeah. days where you buy the purple juice to make it, you know, what, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and sure. And, I'm, and yeah. I'm sure that, you know, you can do that, but I bet it's at the, the expense of something else. Right. And right. you know, I've, we've had like similar conversations like this with different consultants that have come on here um, and how like, you know, you can pump a plant full of immediately available, you know, forms of nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium, whatever, um, that aren't specifically in those forms in the soil, and you're going to result in like a huge, you know, THC number. Um, but if you have different profiles of those same elements, you know, because there's different forms of, you know, nitrate, nitrite, you know, phosphate, um, phosphorus, whatever. Um, I think that it it influences the plant in different ways, right? And it allows the plant to, to express itself differently. Um, <clears throat> and like when you allow for diversity of amino acids, because amino acids act as phytohormones, they act, um, they have different physiological effects on plants. And I believe, I'm sure that they do on mushrooms too. Um, so if you leave it there and let like the root exudates and the biology balance itself out for like your specific topical, topographical location um, and like your climate and your environment, you're going to find a balance and then you're going to have a product unique to the climate and environment that you're in that, you know, can't be mimicked, but like forcing that to happen, I think you're just inevitably going to create an imbalance or have some weird fluctuation or some unpredictable outcome. Um, so for me, it's just feed, feed biology, introduce biology, let it kind of settle um, and like take care of itself. But th there was like, sorry, I'm like super ranting right now, but there was this, um, <clears throat> this one time I posted this article um, and it was talking about specific species of, of bacteria that communicated to other species of bacteria through ter terpenes. Um, mm -hmm. terpenes. Terpenes are essentially the language of the planet, right? That's right. how plants communicate to each other. It's how bacteria, insects, everything communicates to each other through terpenes. And we communicate through terpenes too. Like we smell death and we're like, oh fuck, it's yeah. death. Like don't go over there. It's death. Um, and um so I, I posted this article about specific bacteria that resulted in specific, um, you know, that use specific terpenes to communicate to each other um, and posted it in like the cannabis and like the cannabis community, like talking about like, oh, like, look how interesting this is. And everyone's like, oh my God, Luna, Luna figured out that you can introduce specific species of bacteria. You invented it. <laughs> in in, in um, cannabis and stuff. And I had people hitting me up like, oh my God, like, how did you, like, how do you get like this specific species so I can have more mericine or more, um, you know, limonene, whatever, like I see right. that this species produced limonene, like how much do I have to add? And I'm like, no, that's not, I didn't say that at all. Like, that's not how, it, that's not how it works. And there was like this huge thing that went around where people are talking about, you use this specific bacteria and it produces a specific thing. And that's not, it's not right. what I meant. I <laughs> and so um, with to a point of what you're saying though, is that if we had more testing that we could see what enzymes are being produced specifically by like the terpenes that are being produced by the plant that are then calling in the bacteria because there's a specific pest or pathogen that's coming. Right. So then 
creating this enzyme, then having a feedback loop that's then creating another terpene because it's like, hey, I'm going to ward off the pest. And so you can like increase different terpenes through enzymes, but the testing and like, how do we really know like what's that would just be insane. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why it's so interesting. And I think now that you told that story, I think it is probably your fault that I have these enzyme questions now, because really, (laughs) because by the time the question came to me, it wasn't about the bacteria anymore of what you're adding. It was about the enzymes because within the trichome enzymes are catalysts to trigger production of whatever they're going to start producing. And so, you know, the lack of presence of certain enzymes, you know, equals the lack of certain compounds within, you know, that trichome. And so when I think about like the way that we bred, you know, the, the hemp plants to produce less THC, you know, where there's going to be a difference in enzymes within that product. And, you know, anything that I could look at earlier in the cycle is really helpful. And what I'm hearing right now is that I've got to go all the way back to bacteria, but then I still would have to measure both at every step. If I knew how much bacteria went in, and then how many enzymes were produced, I might be able to create an equation there that could lead to chemical production C over here. Um, but, you know, the repeatability of that is on yeah, the level I, I of think one you, plant at a time, one trichome at a time. I don't even, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I do that. And I, I think even you have to go back further to like amino acids, you know. Right. Um, and Which then isn't it's just, helpful. Now that's tiny and hard to you know, look at. <laughs> how, do you do, how do you do it? I mean, I don't, I don't know how to do it. And I did a lot of the things that I, you know, try to do are all speculative and anecdotal, um, you know, with like a scientific understanding of how it works. But most of the time it's like, I don't, I don't fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> I always like a solution where I can do like a color stain or something that's, you know, qualitative, but you know, accessible you know that's why i love my microscope it's like anything i can learn by looking at it how convenient um but then you know we've it's just it doesn't always explain anything you know it's it's an observation and not an explanation um looks like we have a question posted up uh, from chad westport so he's saying as we pass the amanitas we both wondered are people extracting that how many doses would come from the average sized mushroom? Is it small percentage similar to CBD in type one cannabis? It is even smaller than that. Um, you know, you've got, if we're talking about like just psilocybin slash psilocin. So uh, one thing, if, if someone doesn't already understand this is that psilocybin is the pro drug. Psilocin is the one that you're having a psychedelic experience from. So psilocin is created um, you know, based on de- dephosphorylating the, the psilocybin. And so the acidity of your stomach acid can do that. Um, that's why lemon tech tends to hit a little bit harder because you're using the acidity of the lemon to help break down the chitin for starters and also, um, you know, lose that phosphate group from the psilocybin to become psilocin. And so psilocin is very similar to serotonin in structure and therefore fits into the receptor and can um, you know, give you a serotonin like experience. Um, but we're talking about very tiny quantities, you know, you're seeing like a, an average mushroom, you know, we're talking 1%, 2% maybe. And, and it's so hard to say average, especially now, because, you know, like penis envies have become the average. I feel like they're everywhere now where, you know, for a long time, it was like, 
long skinny Cambodians and, you know, like just different mushrooms. Um, and so, you know, comparing those genetics to each other, I think the differences amongst those genetics are a lot more dramatic, kind of like cannabis probably used to be before we crossbred it to the point of near homogeneity in terms of the cannabinoids. Um, so we may see that happen with mushrooms too, although we don't get to breed mushrooms quite the same way uh, because it's fungus and it doesn't need us <laughs> to, to reproduce itself. But, um, but it's very small quantities generally. And then, you know, once you get up into, you know, those whole numbers, you still are... Um, you still aren't quite experiencing that when you consume it because there's a lot of loss and degradation over time. There's a lot of loss and degradation in that drying and storage process. And so something that started out at 2% three months ago, if it's been sitting in a jar at 12% humidity, um, you know, with oxygen in it, it's probably losing a little bit, a little bit, a little bit until it kind of equalizes with the amount of, you know, oxidizing factors in its environment. Um, and then it might hold steady for a little while, but their their shelf life is so short. And so that original number is so difficult to, to use. And, you know, when we're talking about like a a dose for someone, it's kind of like that five milligram dose of THC for some people, absolutely, five milligrams is their dose. And for some people, they will they have to eat 50 milligrams to get five milligrams into their blood. And so, you know, everyone has a different number of serotonin receptors. And generally, you're going to have more serotonin receptors in your stomach than anywhere else in your body. But what if you have IBS? What if you have Crohn's? What if you had fettuccine Alfredo every day for the past week? You know what I mean? Like, like what if uh, you're my dad and you drink like a gallon of uh, whole milk every day? You know, like everyone's stomach is so different that, you know, the abundance of those receptors doesn't necessarily make them more available for absorbing that drug. And so, you know, you have to be able to optimize those those two things at once. And so it's still quite personal. And I think the similarly to, you know, those cannabis edibles, one of the most personal things about it is how quickly you process it with just, you know, the contents of your stomach alone. That'll make a big difference. That's why, you know, taking them on an empty stomach is going to give you a different experience than a full stomach. Um, you know, it's why I recommend not taking them with a whole bunch of water in your stomach if you just drink a whole bunch of water because it'll get real bubbly for a little while, which is just not that pleasant. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of factors that take an already low number way down, which is pretty tricky because, you know, I remember in, in high school, like you just ate an eighth of mushrooms. I don't know why eighths was the number, but we love an eighth of stuff, right? And And now most of the mushrooms that I encounter, I don't need an eighth of those mushrooms because yeah. they are probably five times as potent as the mushrooms that I would have eaten an eighth of, you know, back in the day. Um, and I think uh, in that same question, they were asked about Amanita, same, same type of circumstance. Now that uh, the market for mushrooms exists, Amanita is kind of the, the CBD of that mushroom market because you get a slightly psychedelic experience, but it's legal you know, everywhere. Um, but when you're cultivating it, you know, versus foraging it, who knows what other 
what other others are in it and how consistent that dose is going to be. Um, you know, amanitas can be poisonous if you are not careful about, you know, when, where you're foraging them and, um, you know, you're not experienced in that way. So a cultivated amanita could be safer to avoid some of those, you know, environmental risks from the amanita, but, you know, it, it doesn't answer the rest of the questions as far as like what other compounds in that mushroom are playing a role in that experience and what your tolerance for that compound over time will be. One of my favorite things about, you know, psilocin as a psychedelic drug is that your body, you know, not only processes it relatively quickly, but it also produces enzymes in response to taking it that make it less effective right afterwards. Like your body says, oh, if you're eating this, I'm going to produce more of this to break it down. And so it kind of has this like anti-addiction <laughs> buffer built in that, you know, prevents you from being able to get, you know, higher right after you've eaten some, which, you know, is, is really interesting in the context of like, you know, not having a huge trip for a week straight. Um, but, you know, when I look at those type of impacts with the not psilocybin, not psilocin, it's, I, I don't know, you know, like we've said several times in several different ways here, you know, it's give and take. So, you know, if I'm producing more of this enzyme to help my body process these other chemicals, what am I not producing while the energy is spent there? Or what is an excess of that enzyme going to do inside my stomach? You know, is it going to eat up my serotonin as well? You know, like, am I, am I working backwards <laughs> or, you know, kind of what does that experience look like? And we just don't have good long-term data for any of it because while we've been using mushrooms for the entire history of, of humankind, we weren't using them in an additive, you know, kind of, pharmaceutical type of way where we're just adding it on top of whatever you do every day, you know, like taking amanitas as a medicine on the same day that you had two frappuccinos. Like, I don't know if that's, if you can say, this is what my ancestors were doing. Like, I don't think, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a, <laughs> there's yeah, a yeah. bit of a disconnect. And so, you know, I, there's just a lot of, um, a lot of other chemicals that we haven't, you know, figured out what is going to happen in your body long-term. So especially with these new, not cubensis, not psilocybin mushroom products, like mushrooms are inherently good for you. They're full of a lot of good stuff, but I would say like everything in moderation because too much of anything is risky and mushrooms just happen to be one of those things that kind of stop you from taking too much. But um, most other compounds are not smarter than us in that way and they will allow us to abuse them so we have to be the responsible ones yeah i've had too many mushrooms too many times <laughs> yeah latent flower for caterpillars what do you think alex yeah i've done it yeah. yep definitely spray that bt it's a uh, soil dwelling bacteria and um if you have caterpillar damage you spray and kill those caterpillars caterpillars means botrytis means bud rot means total loss of harvest go ahead spray them yeah and what i understand it's it's the enzyme that that bacteria produces and it yep. crystallizes the proteins within the cells of those caterpillars yeah so that's pretty it's, gnarly it's pretty cool mm -hmm. yeah. this video watch it happen and like the poor little caterpillars are like 
crusting yeah, up. Yeah, they just they just <laughs> like solidify like, like a <laughs> Yeah. That's pretty sick. So that's it for questions, ladies. Do you guys want to carry on? Luna, I know you're you're sick, so are, have you had enough? I am sick. We can we can keep going. I'll I'll communicate if um good. I'm not doing good. I have had a few a few little coughing fits here. My throat is getting a little weird, but but I'm good. Um do you, I don't know though. How are you how are you two doing? You got anything else? I'm good on time. I'll probably roll a little joint. Uh you know, that always helps get us uh, where we're going. Um, I wonder though, when you're sick too, do you, do you notice being in your grow, um, being detrimental when you're already sick, like being exposed to all of those terps and like the richness of the air and all of that, is the odor too much? Do you get more sensitive to it? I still, I still get up and like walk around my greenhouse and just like check stuff out. Um, it doesn't really bother me now. Um, but like I did walk into my breeding tent and there was pollen everywhere and that bothered me. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, not really. I mean, I've stayed away from, from doing much work. I've been down, I've been down in bed for like 10 days. Um, oh and I went to the, I finally went to the urgent care today and they did a chest x-ray and they think I have a, some kind of microbe infection, fungal or bacterial infection in my lungs. Um, you would, you know, I know I would, right. For real. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I think it's from not wearing a mask while top dressing amendments. Yeah. So like mm -hmm. I, I wore like a, a, a mask when I was mixing my amendments and then I was like, oh, whatever, you know, I'm just going to lean back and like do it. But I have like a big soil bed and I have a whole bunch of beds. Um, and then just like a few days later, I was like, dude, my fucking lungs hurt. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So that's tough because you probably don't want like a whole lot of airflow over that while you're dealing with it. But at the same time, no, otherwise gonna... you got to lock it down in the face. Yeah. And I, and I tried to like, cause I don't, you know, I do no till. And so I tried to do it on top of my mulch and then water it in. And so I didn't mix it with something that was going to like hold the dust down, whatever, like a compost or something. Cause right. I wanted it to go like onto the, the feeder roots of the top of the soil. Um, and the trade-off between like what's going to be best for my plants or what's going to be best for me, <laughs> I think next time right. I'll probably do what's going to be best for me. <laughs> you know, that's fair. Well, yeah, I support um, you unless it turns out that the weed is bad, in which case, <laughs> well, um, my weed is never bad. So yeah, exactly. We'll we'll let you know. Um, I wonder, have you played with ionization at all um, to help with the dust? I don't know. You know what, what you, way, the trade-off would be. How just ionizing it? surfaces so you can get like um fans with ionizing filters um but you know especially like in the lab you can get um you know uh by grounding things um you know to cut down on static but then also just you know like wipes and fans and stuff you can ionize the air and that's just going to um make it harder for dust to move around that's a which cool is idea. Helpful for like when you have to weigh stuff out you don't want like all the dust floating all around in my scale because then i'm like Right. really not weighing it you know like it's the the scale itself is getting heavier with each scoop and so right. um you know it's really helpful with the dust but i don't know how well that'll react in a living environment um i think that that could work indoor if i turn like all the <clears throat> all the fans and exhausts and stuff off um yeah maybe we've had a difficult it's this cool idea to play with in my greenhouse is just impossible yeah you're basically uh, just you know like changing the electrical charge in the air so that it's not sucking that dust 
to itself. You know, it's not magnetizing the dust to to leave where it's at, which, right. you know, for like a pre-roll machine, things like that, super important because otherwise it's just a, a nightmare. Um, also really helpful yeah. in like a bakery where you have just like flour everywhere and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, hey, I had a question. So you were talking about enzymes and acidity to break down, uh, you know, chitin and stuff. Have you ever thought of using chitinase? Use using what? Sorry, chitinase. I don't know. Maybe the science. Chitinase. Chitinase. Um, no, is that uh, a similar type so of? Like, um, chitin's a fibrous polysaccharide, right? And right. Um, there's enzyme chitinase that breaks it down. Um, I mean, so I guess it would, I wonder, you know, just how aggressive it is because the, the chitin also is insulating, you know, some of those alkaloids. And sure. so like it's insoluble, which is helpful. Um, but then, you know, then you still have to like filter it back out again. And so like we use like degumming enzymes in cannabis to like break down really waxy gummy cannabis and i imagine that the chitinase would would react similarly to that where it you know maybe kind of turns it into more of a, a sludge a little more yeah. of a goo than uh -huh. a than a crunchy you know solid <laughs> um, but then but then it you know you end up with that filtration problem down the line of like you know if i can remove a solid from something that's dissolved in a liquid that's you know physically mechanically pretty straightforward, um, removing, you know, separating two liquids from each other, slightly more complicated. And, you know, that gets harder and harder as, you know, they become more sensitive. So, um, cause my, my biggest fear with a lot of this mushroom stuff is that we just don't, we don't know what all the things that are active are in order to monitor them. Um, because it's, uh, the bluing, you know, that is turning the psilocin blue in, in the degradation, that's, there's an enzyme, a specific one that triggers that. Um, and, you know, it being present in the mushroom doesn't necessarily mean that your psilocin will degrade. But if that's true, then like, what's the one that kickstarts it, you know, like somebody's the catalyst, you know, <laughs> nothing happens for no reason. Um, and so, you know, it, it would be tricky to kind of see where, you know, where that breakdown stops. Because one of the things I worry about the most with the mushroom extracts um, is that there's a lot of fats in them, you know, these, um, these fatty acids. And so, you know, fats degrade just inherently, you know, that's why rosin doesn't hold its flavor for as long as live resin. They could have the exact same terpenes in them, but a slightly higher fat content means just inherently a slightly shorter shelf life you know the fats will break down and so it's it's such a trade because those fats could also be you know the antioxidant protectors of the alkaloids and so you know which one is doing which job is is so critical you know it's like i always look at it like i can add vitamin e to a psilocybin extract and that's going to preserve the psilocybin and keep it from degrading into psilocin but like if there's you know, something that could function like vitamin E within that mushroom already, then why do I need to go and bring in this vitamin E? You know, I want to find what's there inside of it. Um, and that's what's so tricky about the cubensis is that it's already a pretty delicate little mushroom, like something like a reishi is like tree bark, you know, it's very difficult to break down. And so 
you know, a more aggressive, uh, you know, approach is probably relevant there. Um, whereas with something like a, you know, a big fluffy, almost cotton candy textured, you know, penis envy mushroom okay. is a little bit easier to get through. But yeah, there's just so many different interactions in there. It's so, so tricky. For sure. It's just a thought. It may be like, yeah. you know. No, definitely. What I do um, the most is I just ruin product um, and I see what it takes to ruin it. <laughs> uh huh. And then I know, you know, then I then I can write that down. Yeah, be That's like thing uh, to not do. Yeah, will. if you find my notebook lying around, it's not instructions. <laughs> you know, don't don't do what I did. That's the stuff that doesn't need to be done. <laughs> didn't work. I mean, I've 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 been there a whole bunch of times. I tried a whole bunch of stuff that was just like, no, that didn't work. Not a good idea. Yep. All right, next. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Just part of the process. Yeah. No, fail, fail as much as you can. Um, that's that's the only way that you get better at anyone. You know, like everyone who knows the most has failed the most. I think that's that's where you learn. Um, Just gotta get if it's, it if it's worked out for you every time, good luck because the failure's coming. You know. Yeah, I don't. Think <laughs> it's never worked out for everyone every time. No way. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of times people take like failure seriously though, or personally, right? They're like, oh, it failed. And now I'm a, I'm a failure. And it's like, no, this is just how it goes. It's right. Just, I, the, the thing you to know? keep in mind is the, all these interactions, all these different inputs are proof that it's not all your fault, you know? So you right. should be yeah. relieved by that. You, you know, That's you can be like, it was those dang bacteria, not me. You know, uh -huh. <laughs> it was there, but still, you know, yeah, yeah. sure, I brought him in, but you know, <laughs> exactly. No, and embrace your failures and talk about them more. You know, I think, like, like I have learned more from you know, seeing stuff go wrong, and I, I respect people so much more for admitting when things go wrong because it, it means they tried something new, you know. If you, right. if you repeat the same thing every time, it's again, innovation doesn't happen there. Definitely. So, gotta play with stuff. You gotta be willing to yeah. fail, be willing to fall down and get back up, you know? Right. Exactly, Victor. <laughs> no, exactly. <coughs> okay, I, I think I'm gonna, Luna, with your hacking like that, I think I'm gonna cut it off here and you need to get some more rest. And I think, Alex, you've got a like son to take care of, and I know Murphy's got. You've got a child too, so. Yep. All right. Thanks, Ken. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun to talk with you guys today. I love it. I, I never get to sit and talk with growers that much anymore because I'm always in the lab. But you know, the, well, the growers really in the. Really appreciate your coming, Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. And thank as you. for the chat, guys. You guys are, are fantastic. You know, I don't know if you guys, ladies, have been watching the chat, but lots of uh, great, great content coming out. So unless you guys have something else to add, I'm going to cut it off there. Yeah. All good? For me, you know. Thank you. All right. Okay, guys, then we'll see, see you, you on Monday. All right. Okay, <laughs> Get well soon.